Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 63. Our guest in this episode is Matthew Fisher, a fifth-year graduate student at Yale University's Cognition and Development Lab. He is on his way to becoming a fantastic psychologist. He's done all sorts of research. The people who did these studies with him, they recommended to me that I talk to him instead of them. And his latest bit of research, it follows along the lines of the other stuff that he's been researching. He says in his own bio that he examines the effects of acquiring information from external sources like the internet and from other people through argumentation. And he's very interested in how well people can assess their own explanatory knowledge. Why is it, he says, that people fail to realize there are gaps in their knowledge? He's one of a number of researchers who is hammering away at this problem. And in this episode, we're going to listen to him explain this really, really fascinating study that he put together to try to figure out just what just what Google does to us. We use it all day, every day to answer questions. Let's pick his brain. So you mentioned early on in the paper that human beings use a variety of cognitive tools to make our lives easier. Uh, I think that's, that's sort of a framing that maybe some people will go, oh, what are you talking about? Well, what are some examples of those cognitive tools? Yeah, so um, we actually start, and maybe it's easier to start with physical tools, and we, and we can think how they extend our physical abilities. So um, in the paper, we talk about, for example, a baseball glove. So... Um, you can think of a baseball glove as just an enhanced hand. You know, it's it's specifically crafted for a particular goal, and it just makes uh, it easier to catch a ball. And it's um, you know perfectly crafted to to fit the uh, human biology, um, and and we can take advantage of it um, and become better at a task uh, because of it. And so similarly, um, there are cognitive tools. So these have, you know, been around uh, for millennia. So uh, you can think of writing as a, as a, a cognitive tool. So uh, without it, if I want to remember something, I need to store that internally. I need to um, take whatever fact I'm trying to hang on to and actually spend the mental energy to hang on to, to that piece of information. But with a piece of paper, um, I can outsource that task. Instead of me holding on to that memory, I can have the piece of paper do it. So if I you know, jot down um, your birthday, instead of me having to hold on to that from day to day, I can now just always go back and rely on that piece of paper. So um, with that broad definition of you know, what a cognitive tool is, we can, we can see that um, they're all over our environment and that, you know, uh, a lot of what culture is, is sort of building these up and making us more and more efficient at, at the things we're trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's kind of, it's really neat because your research taps into something that 
thinkers have been thinking about for a long time. I know that, you know, even our, the Greek philosophers, some of them were like, we shouldn't have scrolls because scrolls externalize our knowledge and that yeah. makes us dumb. Um, and calculators. I, even when I was a kid, you know, I remember old people being like, yeah, back in my day, we didn't have calculators. <laughs> and like, that's well, right. that's, that sucked for you <laughs> because, because <laughs> these are very useful. <laughs> and, um, yeah. and, um, and, uh, and that's sort of what your research is, is definitely tapping into something. When you think about these external tools, I mean, I know that, uh, there's a great book by, um, Daniel Dennett called Intuition Poems, where he talks about, you know, you were saying language, he was saying, you know, a metaphor is a cognitive tool. And yeah, there's some like bigger ones in, in philosophy, like, um, you know, thought experiments, the Chinese room, stuff like that. The, um, but one thing that I think that is a, is a extremely useful cognitive tool that, uh, that we often, that we use every, every single person uses this and doesn't realize that it's a, a thing. Uh, and it's sort of an extension of well, like what photo albums are, uh, you know, anything like that where you store information that, that cues up your memories is uh, an interdependent memory system you write about. But other human beings are also part of our in- interdependent memory systems that we use every day. One of those things is a transactive memory system. What is that? Yeah. So, um, yeah, along the same line um, as, a, as a piece of paper, you know, we're outsourcing uh knowledge uh, to a piece of paper, we can, we can create sort of intricate systems of memory with other people. So um, the, the term that's been used to describe these sorts of uh, systems is transactive memory. So I th- I, one really uh, easy to understand example would be um, an old couple, an old married couple trying to uh, recount um, a story from uh, around the time they first met. So you can imagine that on their own, uh, if you were, you know, to interrogate them one one on one, they may each have a pretty difficult time uh, fleshing out the details of the story and coming up with the, you know, com- complete narrative. But you see this interesting thing where um, if you ask them together, hey, you know, what happened on that day back then? Um, what ends up happening is that uh, one person can remember one part and it sort of cues the memory of another and of the other and they end up uh, kind of cueing each other back and forth and this dynamic process emerges where the story that they're able, they're able to recall is much richer than the sum of the individual parts. Mm-hmm. And so um, in these sorts of memory systems, um, it's important to know um, not only what you have stored internally, but you need to know where to go to find out the information you need. So, um, you know, you can think of this at, at a broader, like, societal scale um, in what some people have called the division of cognitive labor. So um, the idea is that each of us are responsible for a particular um, uh, area of knowledge, and then we're sort of interconnected in this web of ideas to help um, each other accomplish our goals. So uh, you see this in, in science a lot. So if, if I'm um, you know, in a biology lab, uh, I need to be, you know, trusting the work of the chemists and the stat- mm. statisticians and the physicists mm. and kind of together, even though maybe I personally can't uh, understand all the knowledge in each of those domains, um, I know who knows what and I can rely on them. And so um, these two ideas, uh, transactive memory and the division of cognitive labor, just show um, how dependent we are on other people to fill in the gaps in our own knowledge and sort of 
uh, help us work around areas where we might not not know how something works. Yeah, that's so cool because like a lot of the best, um, you know, scientists who really put out a lot of uh, papers and put out a lot of material, they often find a buddy in in the in the world in their, in their silo and they uh, bounce ideas back and forth across with each other. And you find, you know, they have they they're they either they write books together or they write papers together. And I always think of them as being like old couples, like, <laughs> yeah, uh, like um, Kahneman and Tversky and and stuff like that. Uh, they uh, I just interviewed Lee Ross and, you know, Ross and, um, and Nisbet have did a billion things together. And, right. and, and I think of, I think of that, I can only imagine that the, the weird big cloud of knowledge they share and they don't, they're not exactly sure who knows what, but they know they, they're aware of that cloud of info. Um, and it's also a crazy thing that, um, you, when you think of a scientist, you think of a person who knows everything like, uh, you know, Doc and like Marty McFly and, and the and Doc Brown, you're like, you think of Doc Brown, like, what was he a scientist of? I'm not, you know, like he just, <laughs> is, he just is a, just a scientist of some kind. Right. But when you really get to know scientists, you realize that they're usually extremely specialized in one thing and then know almost nothing about anything, anything else. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I think our main point is that even though they may not know um you know the the intricacies intricacies of those other areas of knowledge they often are well connected with people who do and, and right. that's what that's what's matter that is what matters yeah yeah it's always so great to ask a person uh you know in one silo about about another silo and they'll and they'll say well i don't know that but here's the here's 16 people you can contact and they're just so used to that being part of how they interact with the world that they um push that on to you I always think that's so neat and so so talking about this these um this so this transactive memory system. One of the inter- most interesting features of it is that though you have a feeling that you know stuff and you share a a bank of knowledge with either one person, like in a marriage, or with lots of people, like in a scientific discipline, there's a sense, there's an intuition that you know it, but you don't you don't always know exactly how much of what you think you know is in your head or is going to require pinging other people inside that system. And that seems to be the leap you're making into the technological version of this. Am I, am I on the right path? Yeah, that's right. So, um, those are, those are sort of the two main ideas we were interested in. So first is that the internet can serve as a transactive memory partner. So, um, just in the way, as I was describing, you know, how we rely on others for, uh, to fill in information, um, we can do that with the internet to just a much greater extent. Mm-hmm. So in, in a certain way, it's the internet can serve as the ideal memory partner. So um, it's fast, uh, it's accurate for the most part, uh-huh. and um, it's always available. It's always so, awake, always ready, that's <laughs> always right. willing always willing to answer your question. It's in your pocket. Yep. And, it's always uh, there, yeah. Exactly, and it, and it doesn't have to and, – and, you have very little responsibility to it. So it's not asking you back for questions. It's just this one way interaction where we can sort of depend on its knowledge to fill in our own. Uh-huh. And uh, so the, the second main, the second idea we wanted, we wanted to um, test was to what degree does the uh, boundary between the externally stored knowledge and our own internal knowledge get blurred. So, um, we started to think that you know we've become so reliant on um, these other forms or these other um, th- this outsourced knowledge uh, 
that um, perhaps we're underestimating just how reliant we are. And we may be assuming that the knowledge we have access to is actually our own. And it'll lead us to think um, we know more than we actually do. And so that's what we um, we wanted to test in our paper. Okay, so let's get this all on the, on the table. We So this, this internet is sort of, as you write, an expert in all domains, and but it goes farther than, you know, or further than a, a, a meat-based person knowledge source would go. Cause yeah. you know, it's, it's our, our old school brains really readily accepts the internet into our, a transactive memory relationship, but we sort of lose track of how much we rely on it just like we would with a person, but it's just, it's such a magnified version of that, that our, that you know, our, our miscalibration is also magnified in a way. Is that where we're, is that where we are? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, um, the, the question of, um, to what degree we lose track of, uh, how much we know and how much the other people know in transactive memory systems actually hasn't been tested. So that's something we're interested in doing. We, mm-hmm. we, we've been looking at this effect in the internet and asking this, this new question, um, like to what degree do people conflate, uh, their own knowledge with, uh, other knowledge. And um, uh, we've been looking at that effect with the internet, and it very well could be the case that that applies to other forms of transactive memory, like these social networks. Uh, but it's, it's still an open question. Um, I, I suspect that it, it might not um, apply to the, you, you might not see as strong an effect um, when, you, when you look at those systems, but um, it's, it's a question that deserves more research. Well, you know, that's awesome. And I'm glad that, that there's a that you're headed there. And, uh, also you've accurately estimated your knowledge on the, on the subject. <laughs> um, so yeah, but you know, we, in, anyone who's listened to this, listen to the show knows that we already think of ourselves as above average in most regards. We already, right. we already overestimate our abilities and our competence and our knowledge in general. And so it makes sense that we would overestimate what we know when it comes to, uh, a transactive memory relationship, how much we know versus how much is stored in another location. And people in your research seemed you, you, you hypothesize early on that people really underestimate how much they rely on the internet, because when you successfully look something up, it feels like in some way you kind of mastered that <laughs> bit of knowledge. And, um, and you, you actually write quote, like I love this quote, uh, you erroneously include knowledge stored outside of, uh, your own head as your own. So the right. uh, it's it's a, so what's important here, and this was a very important distinction for me because I think that a lot of headlines about your research uh, don't seem to catch this, which is that it's it's a misattribution. Not uh, it's not you know I think the, the knee jerk reaction is that oh so, oh so the internet makes us stupid. Okay, I thought so. Yeah, but it, but it's more of um, it's more about a misattribution and being overconfident and having a, a sort of false self image, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, a misattribution of where the knowledge is. So, um, after you've been plugged into this, uh, sort of, uh, omniscient source, then, then that effect sort of, uh, bleeds into your assessment of yourself. So, uh, you end up feeling smarter, uh, after having, accessed the repository of information on the internet. <laughs> yeah, so there's like a sum total of knowledge and 
you just you think your contribution to it is greater than it really is. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way to put it. So, um, and this, this is a, before we get into the actual research, uh, there's a question I want to get out of the way, which is, so do all of us uh, somewhat savvy internet users and cyber people, are do we think we're smarter than, than we really are on a level above what the typical person believes? Uh, that's, that's a good question. So um, you're right that these sorts of biases just pervade our reasoning more generally, that we just tend to think we're better um, than we actually are. So, um, in our experiments, you can sort of assume that that baseline, that sort of high baseline of self-knowledge of self-assessed knowledge is already built in. Um, and so what we're finding is that even above and beyond those effects that would already be there, that are sort of the normal processes of, uh, of the human mind, um, that the internet can boost those and, and make those more extreme. So, um, we'll walk through some of the details of the experiment, but you know, we're, we have control conditions showing that, um, you know, the people were isolating the effects specifically of the internet. So, um, yeah. above and beyond, ab- above and beyond those, uh, those other biases in human reasoning. Um, it seems like, uh, the internet is, is exaggerating them to some extent. Oh boy. See now there's a headline right there. <laughs> like, <laughs> there's a big one. Like, you know, your, your, um, you know, your biases are, uh, you know, supercharged or your biases are on steroids, however you want to paint it. I can see the, the, uh, I can see the, uh, inflammatory headline. Okay. So, <laughs> let, so let's, let's go through the, um, the, how did you study this? How did you research this? Yeah. So, um, what we did is, um, we, we ran a series of experiments, uh, so nine in total. And we, we used a, uh, the, I'll describe the basic paradigm that we used throughout this series of studies. So, um, what we did is we had participants, um, and we tested them online and we had them uh, randomly assigned to the internet or the no internet condition. So uh, participants would be asked a series of questions, um, sort of common knowledge questions that uh, were moderately difficult, things that maybe you have an intuitive answer to, but when pressed, you may have difficulty coming up with a complete explanation. So we would ask uh, participants things like, um, why are there phases of the moon? How is glass made? Why are there dimples on a golf ball? And uh, participants in the internet condition were asked to go find the answer to that question online and then report back to us the URL that they found most helpful. And then uh, in one version, uh, participants in the no internet condition uh, were told um, the actual answers to the question just directly in the experiment. So what we did is we had we we took the information from the URL that uh, participants found most helpful, and we just provided it directly to participants in the no internet condition. So um, what's neat about this setup is that participants in both conditions are seeing the exact same information. Um, it's just in one case, participants are using the internet to go look it up. And in the other case, participants are just being provided with it directly. So what kind of, um, what kind of questions and information are we talking about? Yeah. So, um, the things like, um, the, the, the sort of questions that have an intuitive appeal, but you can't completely answer. So, uh, how is glass made? Um, how, uh, why are there phases to the moon? Um, things, things like that. Okay. And, and so this was just the induction phase of the experiment. So this is just um, getting participants to either 
be used to finding things online or not. Um, and so after the induction phase, we then had all participants complete the self-assessment phase. So this was when participants um, told us, this, this was our way of, of getting them to tell us how much they think they know. And what we did here is we asked them a series of uh, series of questions totally unrelated to the questions that they had learned about previously. Um, so we asked participants uh, to rate how well they could answer questions about things like uh, health um, or uh, history or pop culture, um, things that were just very different from um, the things they had looked up before. <clears throat> and what we ended up finding is that after having searched the internet, um, participants rated their ability to answer these unrelated questions higher than the participants who had been just given the information directly and not used the internet to look it up. Now, th this is wild stuff, man. That is so <laughs> crazy. Because some of the questions like I, you have in your paper, like, why are there more Atlantic hurricanes in August and instead of September, or uh, August and September? And uh, the idea that I would think I could answer that question after searching the internet a little bit on something completely unrelated is really is a really bonkers concept to me. Yeah. So um, the the way we phrase those questions, um, so we would we would give them um, a, a sort of sample of questions from a particular domain. So um, one of the areas that we asked them to assess was questions about the weather. So we would say, uh, like the hurricane question, we would then ask them, um, how do tornadoes form? Why are cloudy nights warmer? And then the what we'd actually have them assess was how well could you answer questions similar to these? So we sort of give them an example of the sorts of questions within that domain and then have them assess sort of more generally, how well do you think you can do at this sort of task? And so we were, we were trying to tap into kind of a more general notion of knowledge rather than maybe some specific particular question. Um, and so uh, what we ended up finding, uh, like I said, is that uh, people sort of generally think they'll be able to answer these questions better after having searched the Internet. So, you know, this is a very cool finding and there's all sorts of things like we've just talked about forever, you know, how all these implications, but you, uh, what I like about this study is that you, you go ahead and replicate a, a number of times trying to make sure that you have all your, uh, your T's crossed and your I's dotted. That's so right. what is, so, so, uh, so how, what are some ways that you dug deeper and sort of tried to suss out exactly what you, what you were seeing here? Yeah. So, um, there are a number of thing, number of uh, potential worries you you may have with that uh, experimental setup. So uh, things like participants spending more time in the internet condition and maybe just uh, thinking about these questions for longer makes you feel smarter. So we ran an experiment um, controlling for the amount of time participants took on the task in each condition. Um, we uh, we also. Um, we're worried about the exact question we were asking at the end. So um, we were we were telling participants, um, we were asking them, how well could you answer questions similar to these? And um, you might be concerned that participants in the internet condition just interpret that question very differently than participants in the no internet condition. So um, if I've just told you 
to look up a bunch of answers online to these questions I've given you, and then I give you some new questions, you may well assume that when I'm asking you to assess your knowledge, what I'm really asking is, hey, how well could you answer these questions given that you could look up the answers? Um, so uh, we ran a couple experiments to um, rule out that explanation for our, our results. So um, in, in one study, what we did is um, instead of having participants just answer that question, we gave them a, a little cover story. So we said um, participants, uh, we said people who uh, explain questions better have more uh, activity in their brain. <laughs> and so this was just kind of made up neuroscience for the, for the purpose of this experiment. And um, then we had them, the slider scale that uh, either went from a barely lit up brain to a, a brain with, you know, uh, lit up all over. And um, we had them assess uh, using that scale um, what their brain would look like when they gave an explanation. And the idea there was we want to really zero in on participants assessing knowledge in their own head, not including things that they have access to. And this was just one way um, for us to, to get at that question. Um, we also uh, took a, a more straightforward approach in, in a follow-up experiment where we just included in the instructions, um, how well could you answer questions similar to these without using any outside sources? And uh, what we found is that with the new phrasing or using the brain slider dependent measure, um, you still get the effect. So our effect replicates and participants in the internet condition um, give themselves higher ratings. <laughs> I, lo I love that they're like, yeah, that, that really active brain, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, one other thing we were interested in is trying to, to get at the, the why question. So what is it about the internet um, and the process of search that is leading participants to um, to give these sorts of ratings, and um, so what we what we did at the end of the paper is um, tried to to uncover the the mechanism kind of leading to um, yeah. these results. This is the part that I, I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. Of course, you know, in hindsight, of course, <laughs> but the uh, but yeah, go ahead. You, you started yeah. to really dive in on maybe it's the search itself. It's the, it's the actual, the way that we get into the internet, the actual verb of, you know, searching the internet, maybe that's it. So how did you, how did you explore that? Yeah. So, um, we did this, um, a couple different ways. So one way we did it is, um, we sent participants to a, a URL that was a filtered Google search. So, um, maybe you've used these settings, um, uh, on Google, maybe if you're looking for like a, a recent article, you you can filter by um, things posted within the last week or the last month, um, and sometimes that's really helpful. But for the sorts of questions we were asking participants, that was really actually really unhelpful. So um, we would, when participants in the internet condition were looking up questions like um, why are there phases of the moon, the results they would see when they searched for it would only be things that had been posted in the last week. And, um, you know, we, we made sure that the um, posts that's, that showed up on the Google, Google results were not very helpful to answering that question. Um, and so participants would go through the same task I described earlier, but um, now participants in the internet condition were getting results that really weren't that helpful to answering the question. And um, what we found is that even with these irrelevant results, 
participants still rated themselves as knowing more in these other domains during the self-assessment phase of the okay, experiment. Okay, okay, hold on. So the one in one instance, they got bad info when they searched. In another instance, they got irrelevant or no info when they searched. And still, they still thought that their their knowledge, they rated their knowledge as higher, even though they weren't getting you know the results out of the internet that would increase their knowledge. So what? So what's going exactly. on here? Yeah, so um, what we think is going on is that there's something about being embedded in this search environment that really matters. So just the very act of typing in your Google search query to this, um, to this engine that you understand can basically access the world's knowledge sort of leads you to um, assume that you are contributing to that more than you actually are, that you are less reliant on that source um, than you actually are. Um, and so independent of what you're actually learning from the internet, um, just the ability to search it seems to matter in terms of, um, inflating our assessments of what we think we know. (laughs) God, that's so weird. And the, you know, so what is the, um, you know, the first thing that pops in my mind, and I'm sure that you guys thought this too, is, you know, you know, how is this different from, say 1972 some bookworm who loves to go to the library and is always looking up stuff and or maybe a person who works at the library and is always searching for um people patrons who come in and and need information is there is this is this absolutely unique to the internet or, or is it what's going on there yeah it's a great question and um i'm aware of some work at other labs uh like starting to explore this question and um what seems to be um, going on is that the internet is unique. Um, and the way I see it is that um, the internet has a, a few features um, that other sources of information just don't have. Um, it's, uh, and then these were uh, what I mentioned from the onset, and that's that it's fast, it's reliable, um, and it's always available. And so um, I think to the, de- the degree to which other uh, sources of information exhibit those properties, you may see a similar effect. So uh, you can imagine um, a, uh, a librarian, maybe from an era past that was you know, looking through the card catalog very efficiently and could access all this information super quickly. Uh, maybe she would, she would exhibit the effect as well. Um, but uh, the ability to just have all of this knowledge in our pockets on our smartphones at all times seems like a fundamental shift in just the availability and um, uh, the degree to which we can rely on this information. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, one way to think about it is that um, the uh, our effect is basically showing that people confuse their knowledge in their head with uh, knowledge stored externally, and so um, to the extent that you can make uh, that external knowledge feel more like your own, um, then it's you're more likely to see this effect. So um, while an uh, encyclopedia in the basement is accessible, it doesn't feel like it's accessible in the same way that Wikipedia is, for example. Right. And, you know, even if there is a similar thing, you know, to a much lesser degree with the encyclopedia in the basement or the... Uh, well, if there, even if there is a similar thing going on with, say, a person who is constantly searching like a librarian of old times, uh, you know, th- having it in your pocket and then you're sitting around at the party and somebody says, let's get down to brass tacks. And then somebody says, 
hey, what does that even mean? And then you go clickety clack. It means this. Like, you know, it turns us all into, uh, you know, the person with the infinite Rolodex and the infinite, uh, I mean, it, it, whatever effect might have occurred within a librarian is now definitely occurring in everyone and then to a big, to a magnified degree. So there's, that is, um, to me, that's just a super astonishing thought. And the fact that it, it, do you think that this is, so I guess this leads to the big question, which is, is this good, bad, neither, just (laughs) different? I mean, what are the implications for, I mean, is for a, for we human beings now with this new ability and this new set of behaviors and this new illusion of knowledge, what are the implications? Yeah. So, um, I think one interpretation, um, that I, I very much disagree with is that, Hey, this proves the internet is evil. Let's all run for the hills. (laughs) And, and, uh, I, I, I don't think that at all. So, uh, first of all, the internet is just obviously a wonderful resource and has, you know, revolutionized, um, all sorts of domains of human endeavors and has helped us out in countless ways um, and is continuing to do so. And so the way I've been thinking about these results is um, more as a trade-off of the strategy we're using to store and access information. So it's it's more like an unintended consequence that may be important to be aware of, um, but not any reason to raise the alarm bells um, or, you know, th- start uh destroying any internet servers or anything like that <laughs> you know uh it reminds me of um my dad used to do uh be a, he was an electrical contractor i used to and i used to do con, work on construction jobs with him and there's everyone always was very aware in that world that when you start to project into the future how long a project will take you always grossly you know underestimate how much time it's going to take to do something yeah and so and so they actually well, knowing that's true, they would put into their quotes and their blueprints and their plans uh, an extra amount of money that a project would need, an extra amount of time it would need just to make up for the fact that they knew that human beings were bad at that and they just intuitively understood it. Yeah. And and I think that's, that's really cool. They just sort of banked on the fact that they were going to miss, they were going to underestimate. And it, in the paper, you you sort of sum up talking about one thing that might happen here is people might unwittingly exaggerate how much um, work they can do in a, in, from one situation to the next intellectually or, yeah. how, or, or maybe how much, how much work it will take or how much research it will take to come to a certain level to be competent in something or a project or a research paper or a book or whatever. And uh, it really reminds me of the other thing. And it seems like since this is just since we just got this, I mean, relatively speaking, we aren't really yet doing that thing that contractors do where they factor in the extra time because they know that they're uh, underestimating. And it seems yeah. to me that, that maybe there's a space here and your work is going to help. Um, at, at a certain point, we will acknowledge that we're overestimating our knowledge and we will uh, maybe factor that into things. Am I sort of in the same, in the right world here? Yeah, so... Um... I think one, one way to think about it is that um, if, if I think I know how to answer these questions about the weather, but I actually don't, um, for much of our everyday life, that may not matter because of how pervasive uh, the internet has become. So um, let's, let's say I go around thinking I know how tornadoes form when I actually don't. Um, 
And at some point I actually need to produce that information for some purpose. Then um, if I realize, Hey, what was that answer again? Maybe I don't actually know it. I can just pull it up within seconds and I know the answer. So um, I think for much of the work that we would need to do, this may not be a serious problem just because the internet um, is uh, available to us and we and we can rely on it um, but I think it does become problematic in, in some uh, instances so um, I think there are domains of thought or dom- domains of knowledge where it actually is good to know how much do I myself know about this topic independent <laughs> of my reliance on other sources of information right um, so like if you're the, like if you're the president or uh, <laughs> you know or you're you know, in, in a situation where your decisions really impact a lot of people, it would be good to know exactly how much you don't know. Yeah, that is, that is true. Um, and I think, um, although even in, um, you know, really important situations, yeah, you know, if you think about, uh, you know, this is less important than uh, a president, but uh, you can think about a, a surgeon uh, performing uh, an important surgery. It's often in those cases that we we, uh, in a sense, guarantee that the resources that that person needs are around him and accessible. Mm, so he, he yeah, has yeah. he has other doctors that know certain things. He has an iPad there that can, you know, look up, uh, you know, what to do in, in certain situations. Um, and so, uh, when when the stakes are raised, I think we're we're aware of that, and so we we put in the environment the tools that people need to succeed. Um, but. Uh, independent of uh, of those sorts of situations, um, one area that where I've been um, thinking this could be a problem is uh, in the political domain, for example. So, um, if I'm going um, to vote on a particular uh, issue or for a particular candidate, um, it seems like it's important um, in that situation for me to know um, how much. Uh, how much do I understand about the issues at hand, uh, independent of my uh, of of the internet or other sources? So I think uh, this work is suggesting that in a situation like that, people may often feel like they're experts in a in a particular uh, topic, when in fact they just can access information that helps them uh, think about it in a deeper way. That's really um, interesting. That's really interesting. I, I, I've um I've been spending a lot of time with, uh, with this new book, talking to political scientists and, and interacting with potential voters on a bunch of issues. And they, uh, one thing that keeps coming up, especially among the political scientists is, is trying to really hammer home that most people, even when they believe very strongly about a, a topic or they are, um, they have a strong emotional response to a certain issue. They don't usually have a lot of knowledge to back up that feeling. Right. And, uh, and it's something that political scientists are always talking about that, you know, a big part of, of, of encouraging people to vote or changing attitudes or anything along those lines is, you know, just letting, just giving people a chance to realize they don't actually know what they're talking about. Yeah, I, th- I think that's true. Um, and I think the internet, uh, is only going to make that harder because, um, even, even though they may not know um, how to, you know, articulate their position um, when forced to, they certainly will be able to Google it and find someone who can. And so, <laughs> yes. so they okay. can sort of fill in their knowledge. 
Now this, so that is a, I was going to, this is going to be my last question. This was going to be my last question and it, it still will be, but it, uh, you segued perfectly into it for me, which is I can't, I could not stop everywhere throughout your paper. I was thinking, especially when, um, especially the part where you talk about how people see the internet as sort of a, 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 the, the most ultimate, you know, sage, you know, the, right. the, the internet is, is our digital Gandalf. So where does confirmation bias fit into all this? You know, because when you have search, you can confirm everything. So how does that fit into what you're researching? Yeah. Um, that, that, that's, that's a great question. And I think you're right that, um, you know, confirmation bias is one of the fundamental features of human reasoning. And, um, the the internet gives us access to uh, materials that can support all sorts of points of view, and so um, I think the ease to, um, with which we're able to find things that um, confirm what we, what we what we believe is just rising exponentially, um, and so I think that is uh, an important area to be thinking about. And uh, I think uh, it'd be a great direction for future research. Oh, that's a good answer. <laughs> there you go. There you go. I, I don't know, but we will look it up. That's right. Um, <laughs> we'll figure it out. Uh, I love this. This is such, this is such cool work. And I really wanted to have you on the show because I, you know, I love reading about this kind of stuff, but I kept seeing a lot of, to me, it seemed like there was a lot of weird interpretations and I really enjoyed being able to go through it with you. I know people are going to want to learn more about what you're up to and they're going to maybe want to try to follow you. How can they do that? Yeah. Um, so, uh, I have a website, um, through, uh, Yale. You can just, uh, Google it. That's probably the easiest way to find it. Uh, <laughs> Matthew Fisher at, uh, Yale university. And, um, I have, uh, several papers kind of with re- related to similar topics, um, posted up there. Um, and you can email me at matthew.fisher at yale.edu um, with any questions or ideas. Um, I, I love hearing feedback about the work that I'm doing. Trying to make us less dumb. Yes. Uh, you are, uh, thank you so much. Uh, I, you, you're such a great guest and you so eloquently spoke about all these topics. Thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, it was wonderful. Thanks, David. And now we take a break from our show for a word from our sponsor. I love the great courses. You know I love the great courses. And I'm learning so many things about so many subjects that fascinate me. Science, psychology, gaining credible in-depth knowledge from top professors who are so passionate about the things that they are presenting. You've got to check out this stuff. The great courses, the one I'm listening to right now, we just listened to it on a long trip, a long like 10-hour trip to Missouri. We were listening off and on to Behavioral Economics When Psychology and Economics Collide by Scott Hutel, Professor of Psychology and Neuroscience at Duke University. This is a really fascinating look at our decision-making process, what drives our choices, why we choose the things we choose consciously and even unconsciously. Here's a great example, and this always blows my mind. He talks about it, and then he goes deep into the science behind it. Imagine the best coffee you've ever had. It's really pricey, but it's the best you have ever had. Coffee and a bagel costs $10.00. But the place you go to is five minutes away from your apartment. Then a new place opens that's 10 minutes away. You get the same stuff for $5. So it's usually $10, but now you can get it for five. Do you then go that extra five minutes to get the half price stuff? Now, imagine that instead of that, you're buying a new television and it costs $1,000. 
and you learn that you can drive 10 minutes away instead of five minutes away and get it for $995. Would it be worth it to you to travel that extra five minutes to get $5 off that price? Most people say no, but most people say yes to the coffee thing because we don't judge things by their exact values. Even though it is exactly the same amount of savings, $5, one seems worth it and one does not. Why is that? You will learn that and all sorts of other things in this course. What is a good decision? The rise of behavioral economics, comparisons, temporal discounting, probability weighting, range effects, reference dependence. You don't know what any of that means, but you will. After you take one of these great courses, put it in your vehicle and listen to it all day or watch it on a DVD or get digital streaming or watch it on an app or watch it at work in a little window on your computer, you can do that with 500 different subjects. And it's not just YouTube videos. These are professionally made videos with super smart people who have been vetted. And it's a whole course. It's lots of videos. It's not just one or two. It's this giant range of courses. In fact, this one that I'm talking about is 24 different lessons. Oh, it's so good. I can't speak highly enough about the great courses. They're giving my listeners a great offer so you can get a course right now, today. Order from eight of their best-selling courses, including behavioral economics, at up to 80% off the original price, only available for a limited time, so you have to order it right now. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash smart. To get that whole offer that I just told you about, go to thegreatcourses.com dot com slash smart and now we return to our program on each episode of the you are not so smart podcast i read a piece of self-delusion news or talk about a new study in the psychology of reasoning the neuroscience of thinking about thinking about decision making judgments all those sorts of things and then i eat a cookie in this episode, we are discussing new research that suggests that Facebook keeps teenagers, and maybe the rest of us too, in a state of constant stress. This comes from the American Association for the Advancement of Science. They have this website where they put out press releases, and science journalists use this website a lot. It's called Eureka Alert. And this headline reads, Liking on Facebook, good for teen stress, but being liked, not so much. And the subhead reads, Teens who have more than 300 Facebook friends have higher levels of cortisol, the stress hormone. The release explains that basically the more you mess around with Facebook, the more Facebook mess around, messes around with you. Being an active member of Facebook leads to a constant flux in your hormone levels. And this team led by Sonia Lupien found that having more than 300 friends on Facebook increased the levels of cortisol in the study's subjects. But the more those subjects then later liked what those friends on Facebook wrote and the more they acted as though they supported those friends posts and overall opinions and attitudes, the lower those levels then became. At first glance, it seems to suggest that just being on Facebook kind of establishes a new baseline of icky feelings and then interacting with Facebook diminishes those feelings. The study used subjects ages 12 to 17, and the researchers said they believed people in that age range who have way more than 300 friends will likely experience even greater stress. This comes from a new field called cyber psychology, by the way, really cool new field in uh, science where psychologists use social media to explore the human brain in ways that we've never been able to do before to explore human behavior, not just social media, but all 
internet stuff. And this particular study reminds me a lot of when I was a smoker. You, you know, when you smoke, you begin to believe that smoking is what lowers your stress, that smoking lowers, that smoking itself is a stress reducer. But really, smoking introduces a stressor into your life that you then reduce through smoking. It's the sickness and the cure. And this really reminded me of that. It seems to suggest that Facebook has a similar effect, that Facebook, in general, raises your level of cortisol because it raises your stress about life and your relationships and stuff. But then you have to use Facebook to then lower that stress back down again. So in a way, it is also the sickness and the cure if you wanted to frame it that way. As always, remember, this is just one study. All research has to be replicated with an eye toward disconfirmation. But at the moment, this adds a single bit of evidence onto the pile of stuff we now know about how the internet affects our psychology and physiology. And if nothing else, we can definitely say that using Facebook and other social media does affect us in some way. Now, what starts with the letter C? Cookie starts with C. Let's think of other things that starts with C. Uh, ah, who cares about other things? C is for Cookie. That's good enough for me. On each C episode of You Are Not cookie. So Smart podcast, I eat a cookie baked from a recipe sent C in by a listener or a reader. And then that listener or reader receives a signed copy of the You Are Not So Smart book. Of course, I don't make the cookies. Mandy makes the cookies, but I eat them and then we talk about them and then we think about how wonderful the world is because there are cookies in it. And this, this cookie comes from John Edwards, not that John Edwards, another John Edwards who writes in the email that this podcast, You Are Not So Smart, was recommended by a member of Apple's, and I'm not going to say the rest of it, but a, a team at Apple listens to You Are Not So Smart while they make amazing things. He can't go into any more detail and so I'm not going to either. But he said that he wanted to find a cookie from the repository of his wife's recipes. And he presents the meta cookie. And he also included a link to, a, to research. In, this is really crazy. Research out of Tokyo where people use augmented reality to uh, look at things in their eyes that are different from what they're eating and see if it messes with their ability to taste cookies. So there is a meta cookie project that he linked to. And this is sort of an homage to that. The, he says these are similar to Trudy Wang's chocolate fudge peanut butter cookies that were in episode 27. But this is a, these leverage the Pareto the Pareto principle to deliver the same kind of the Pareto principle to deliver the same kind of joy with less prep and engineering effort. So here's the thing. And also he wanted to say he made those peanut butter packed chocolate fudge cookies and they were incredible. So this is a cookie within a cookie. This is a meta cookie. This is a cookieception that is taking place right here. There are cookies inside of cookies. Now, he recommends that you offer these to people without letting them know. So when they bite into it, they're amazed that there is a second cookie inside this. This is a turducken of cookies. <laughs> this is perfect because we often talk about metacognition, thinking about thinking. We often, and in my new book, we talk about meta beliefs, beliefs about your own beliefs. And this is a meta cookie, a cookie about which there is yet another cookie inside the first bite. The ingredients are one cup of softened butter, three quarters of a cup of brown sugar and granulated sugar and eggs and vanilla and flour and salt and baking soda and chocolate chips. And he says a bag of Mr. Christie Fudgios. Unfortunately, those are not available in my area. So we use chocolate Oreos. They have chocolate cream and their chocolate Oreos. So basically what you do is you cook 
the cookie inside this cookie. So it looks like a big, gigantic, misshapen chocolate chip cookie. Way too big. You're like, wow, somebody likes chocolate chip cookies. And then you bite into it, and guess what? And actually, the one I have in front of me has a is cross-sectioned so I can see the cookie inside of it. It's really cool. I'll have a picture of this up at the website so you can see what they're like, along with the recipe. So without any more crazy ado, let us try. Here we go. Let's try. Down around that cookie at home. Hmm. Well, now this is this is too much. This is like what happens when an emperor has done everything and has desensitized, has become desensitized to pleasure and just says, bake a cookie in a cookie. Mm -hmm. If they, you could never sell these. I mean, you could. What am I saying? You can make pizza with hot dogs as the crust, but you could, they should sell these as like, instead of wheat ease, these would be diabetes ease. <laughs> this is, oh boy. Yes, I feel like an emperor who can no longer feel pleasure. I'm like, yeah, bring me a steak with a, cheeseburger inside and have the cheeseburger meat and steak meat made from cows who've only eaten cheeseburgers inside of steaks. Mm, yes, that will please me for one day. And also teach teach everyone named Paul in town how to do the moonwalk and have them do that for me tomorrow. I want to see that while I eat cookies inside of cookies. Make me cookies with cookies in them. Oh, John Edwards, this is delicious. I don't know where I would present this or when it's too much. It's too much. One bite. And I'm like, well, I'm done. I will never eat anything sweet for a week. Um, but this would be great to bring to a party, but to eat just, uh, mindlessly eat while watching uh, Netflix. No, <laughs> this is, this is guaranteed to hurt you, but it's a good hurt. Oh, thank you so much, John. You wrote some nice things. We actually exchanged a couple emails over the uh, Apple thing. And, uh, he thanked, uh, everyone here who makes this podcast, which is me and Amanda, uh, for making us all a little smarter, smarter and humbler. And I try. Thank you so much, John. Your book is on the way. That is it for the You Are Not So Smart podcast. I would like to thank the patrons, Chris Johnson, Ed Bright, Jerome, no last name, just Jerome, Ted Ladaris, Willow Osler, Tal Atlas, Matt Warren, Ben Maxwell, Jerry Wells, Eo Otterskov. That is a really, really cool name. Uh, Vincent D. Warmerdam, Amber and Mark, Chris, Francis Lukesh, Adam Robinson, David Haberman, Tomek, Sebastian Zybel, Chad, Hobby, Keely, Kaczynski, John Perry III, Stefan, Alden Vailer. I, I, I love you all. Thank you so much for what you've done. I will read more of your names in the next show. Thank you for listening to this. If you would like to learn more about the You Are Not So Smart podcast, get the show notes and everything, go to youarenotsosmart.com. This music you're listening to, that's Banjo Apocalypse. They're all throughout the show. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. 
Head to boingboing.net for more great podcasts. Boing Boing has been supporting us for so long. And if you would like to learn more about the show, you can also go to Facebook. That's You Are Not So Smart at Facebook. And at Twitter, it is at NotSmartBlog. I am at David McCraney. <laughs>